Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And because of the proximity of today's episode to United States Turkey Day, we thought it would be very important to do a movie that had been featured on one of our favorite TV shows of all time, Mystery Science Theater 3000. And Rob, I think we picked the right one because today we're going to be talking about Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues. And I, yes. I, you, you really got to love a subtitle that starts with and. Yes, it's just a fabulous title that I think accurately prepares you for what is to come. Uh, it, is a, it, it is a wonderfully weird film uh, in its own right. And yeah, we definitely wanted to, to drive home the MST3K Turkey Day connection here because, I mean, I, I saw, I guess, a, a fair number of weird films on television when I was younger outside of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 context. Mm-hmm. But Mystery Science Theater 3000 had a way of of not only introducing one to new weird films, but I think also encouraging the the viewer to find not only humor in these films, but but at times a sort of joy, and um, and, and and that's what we we try to do on this show as well to find the joy in weird films, be they good films or bad films, B films or more expensive films, art films, what have you. Uh, speaking of, some of you might be wondering, what is Weird House Cinema? Isn't this isn't Stuff to Blow Your Mind a, a science and culture podcast? Well, it is. Uh, our primary episodes, our core episodes, air on Tuesdays and Thursdays and will remain uh, to, to be focused on science and culture. But on Fridays, uh, we're doing this Weird House Cinema thing where we're, we're focusing in on some uh, weird film, some film that we find some weirdness in. And we're discussing it. And sometimes we'll discuss a little culture and science in there as well. But for the most part, the focus is on the film. Think of it as a science and culture podcast's research excursion into the wild swamplands of weird film. Maybe we should hear a bit of the trailer audio from Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues. The swamps of southern Arkansas. It's here that decades ago, a legend the legend of a huge, hairy, man-like creature. We're looking for the Boggy Creek creature. You can take my word for it, there ain't no monsters around here. Hey, boy, where do you think you're going to find that monster? Going to find him in the swamp if it exists. He's been seen over a hundred times since the early 50s. Seen by who? Drunks or city folks like you all want your name in the newspaper? Now, from the award-winning producer Charles C. Pierce comes a motion picture that will stir your imagination. From his first classic film, The Legend of Boggy Creek, he proudly presents Boggy Creek 2, and the legend continues. Okay, the elevator pitch on this movie. Uh, Dr. Brian Lockhart is a professor of anthropology from the University of Arkansas. After hearing reports of a Bigfoot class or squatchoid creature in the wilderness of southwest Arkansas, Lockhart and several students travel to the woods to investigate. Could it be that the legends of Boggy Creek and its mysterious creature are true? So this is this is a hairy man-ape creature film, right? Yeah, this is this is a Bigfoot movie. Um and uh, and to refresh for anyone out there who's not familiar with it, Bigfoot is just one of the many names given to alleged ape-like humanoids or wild men in North America. 
But of course, they have tons of regional names from the skunk apes of Florida to the, the Sasquatch itself. And, and as much as we may want to believe in them, these are cryptozoological creatures. There's no acceptable scientific evidence for their existence, though evidence in general ranges somewhat. There's the ridiculous, there's the mysterious and the unknown, and there's a great deal of just unverified sightings. It's people saying, I saw something, I think it was a Sasquatch. And you know, there's varying degrees of, uh, of, of actually presented evidence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a whole bag full of anecdotes, some video footage that pretty mm-hmm. much always could be somebody in a suit. Right. And of course, when we, you know, it, 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 as, as we have discussed in, on our main show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, plenty of times, when you're getting into um, supernatural experiences, uh, such as experiences of alien abductions, experiences of UFO sightings, experiences of Sasquatch sightings. These are all things that um, that are more complicated than one might initially think. Like there are, var- there are various reasons that one might think they saw or experienced something that was not part of objective reality. And then when you get memory involved in the process, you know, uh, things become altered. And, and uh, so it's, it's, more, it's always more complicated, I feel, than in many cases it's more complicated than someone just saying something that isn't true. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's ultimately, I think, a complex question. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of cases somebody did see something. They're not just like making up a lie. I mean, some people are, but – in the example of the particular Squatchoid variant that we're going to be talking about today, I think there is uh, there, there's pretty good reason to think that people were originally seeing a black bear, yeah. seeing a bear, and then that turned into a legend that was built upon in subsequent generations. Yeah, and, and as far as legends alone go, you can go pretty deep here. With, you know, looking into tales of wild men of the woods from cultures around the world. Uh, there are multiple examples of this. We've talked about several of them on our show. You know, there there's an othering of the outsiders in some of these legends. There's also this fear um, of uh, of the wilderness, as well uh, as in a more modern sense, a reverence for nature tied up in the idea of these beings that live in the wood, these things that are like humans but not humans. Um, and and we've we've driven home that on the we've we've discussed this on the show before. These two sentiments come together in a very funny way in in Boggy Creek too, because the creator Charles B. Pierce, who we will talk about at length throughout this episode, he he brings in both the kind of like like gross weird like tabloid interest in Mm -hmm. the creature but also this like very much like whining about littering and and the despoliation of the natural environment yeah um and and this brings us to something that we've discussed before i think maybe we talked about this on the old trailer talk uh video series we did for a little bit back in the day but you, you essentially have two different types of sasquatch movie so first of all there is the savage squatch movie this is the Bigfoot uh, is seen as a, a violent being that attacks those who venture into his wild domain and or encroaches on the civilized realm to cause mayhem. Uh, these, of course, tend to be your straightforward monster movies. Uh, and, and also you can, you can tie this in, too, with, um, with Grindel and Beowulf. You know, it's, mm-hmm. the, it's the being from the outside that lives in the wilds coming in and causing trouble. So your sleazier Bigfoot films are going to generally fall into this category, such as uh, 1983's Night of the Demon and Mike Findlay's 1974 schlock classic Shriek of the Mutilated. Yeah, that's a good one. The other variety of Squatch film is the Noble Squatch. Um, 
And it, it portrays the Bigfoot as, at worst, a misunderstood forest guardian, a noble creature that personifies all the admirable aspects of the, of the wilderness and its value to a growing industrialized world. This is the squatch of Harry and the Hendersons, for example. And the treatment of the creatures in the Boggy Creek movies, I feel, I feel like it falls mostly in line with this category. Well, I think it's always trying to sort of like tease you with the possibility that it's going to at any moment become the the Squatch Attack movie, mm-hmm. but that uh, but the real underlying reality that is always going to be the Noble Squatch in in the Boggy Creek verse. Yeah, which which I have to say I like. You know, I, I feel like that is the correct direction, and I feel like that's the direction with the most legs. You know, uh, the idea that that it also is the direction that allows room for growth in the characters. All right. So maybe we should, before we get into the plot in any deep way, talk about the the, uh, fi- the creative forces behind this movie. This is the brainchild of one Charles B. Pierce, a, an auteur, a, a writer, director, and actor who made a number of B movies. Uh, this is – I don't know if I've seen any of his other ones, but the, this one you might well say is enough. Yeah. Uh, Charles B. Pierce, the Bocephus of B movies. <laughs> The titan of Texarkana indie filmmaking. Uh, he lived 1938 through 2010. And, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating character. He's, he, he, he ultimately has one of these just really inspiring uh, filmmaking success stories that you sometimes hear about. He grew up shooting 8mm film in his backyard. He started working in local TV, doing everything from art directing and hosting a kid's cartoon show to doing, like, local weather. He did commercials for a, a company that made big rigs. Uh, but along the, the way here, he got an idea. So, so he's, you know, he's living and working uh, d- uh, down in the, um, the southwestern uh, corner of Arkansas. That's down there near the border of Texas and Louisiana. Um, and he got the, the idea uh, there to film something about uh, these stories that he kept, he kept hearing about, these stories of a creature, particularly dealing with sightings of the Falk monster in Falk, Arkansas. Now, Falk. if you're not Falk, Falk, it 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 seems to it's a word that um, has no rhyme it, in English. Yeah, and it, it encourages mispronunciation, like like few other uh, names. But Falk, yeah. And if you're not familiar, Falk, Arkansas, is in the swampy southwestern corner of the state. Again, close to the borders of t- Texas and Louisiana, it is swamp country. It is just rural as hell, as far as I can tell. I've, I've not been there myself. I don't think. Um, and, but but it is a it is a, a swampy wilderness, and there are tales there of encounters with a bigfoot creature of some sort that is thought to occupy the swamp and use boggy creek uh, as a way of uh, of the, the creeks and the, the the streams as a way of moving around. There is an expression that pops up throughout the film to describe the place. I guess it it might mean swamp or something, but they keep saying the word bottom to indicate a place. Uh, yeah, so like, like bottomlands. Yeah, yeah, it's like we're down in the bottom or uh, you know, it's 15 miles out of this bottom. They just keep saying it. So I, I don't know if that's a region expression or if it's more wide and I just never heard it anywhere else well these are definitely these are definitely bottom lands these are these are swampy lands you know um, so this is uh, this is basically in the very early 1970s and Pier- Pierce decides this is what he wants to do a film about yeah, and so I, I looked into the actual Falk monster legends. Uh, there, there have been sporadic reports where people claim to see a large creature of some kind in southwest Arkansas since maybe like the 1940s. 
mm-hmm. it seems the claims really took off around 1971 when there was a report by a guy named Bobby Ford that uh, I think he was sitting in his living room and suddenly some hairy creature reached into the living room window through with one arm. Ah. And then after that, uh, I think – what what really got the excitement going was there's that story, but then there was the discovery of some physical evidence, some tracks. And here I want to read from an AP article from July 21st, 1986 by Scott Charton. Uh, and Charton writes, The excitement began when a farmer found three toed tracks, size 14 double E, on the edge of a soybean field in June 1971. A carload of Texarkana residents said the monster dashed across U.S. 71 one late spring evening. A deer hunter said she spotted the creature in heavy timber. One man moved his family to another town after what he described as a terrifying encounter with the monster that sent him screaming through a closed door. Depending on the source, the red-eyed monster was a howling ape, a swamp man, or a country cousin of the abominable snowman. The reports (laughs) captured the imaginations of students who had monster drawing contests, and one teacher who said the creature should be protected as an endangered species. But despite the offer of a $10,000 reward, the Falk monster was neither trapped nor photographed. And I was looking up contemporaneous articles. I was looking around in newspaper archives, and and I found some. They're pretty interesting. So uh, this article is from June 16th, 1971 in the Hope Star. The Star was a newspaper of the town of Hope, Arkansas. And uh, it looks like the headline is, Has Theory About Falk Monster. Uh, This is unsigned, and the article says, Frank Shambaugh, an archaeologist at Southern State College, said today that after analyzing photographs of tracks made by the so-called Falk monster, it was his opinion, quote, there is a 99% chance that the tracks are a hoax. The photographs were taken Tuesday by Bob Burns, a chief photographer for the Texarkana Gazette. Shambach said after studying the photographs, the tracks were not human and did not look like anything belonging to the monkey family. Quote, all the primates have five toes, he said. Also, the monkey family is not nocturnal and is, like humans, a daytime creature. And th- this would seem to clash with a lot of the reports saying the monster was always seen at night. Um, but then Shambaugh goes on. This, in my opinion, Shambaugh said, would rule out any type of monkey or ape. I think it might be some kind of hoax, and I certainly hope someone does not get hurt, he said. I don't think a monkey could survive a winter here, he said. There are, and have never been, no monkeys native to North America, so that rules out anything that could have been left over from times past. Miller County Sheriff Leslie Greer thinks, however, that the monster may be either a large monkey or a small ape. (laughs) (laughs) Greer along with several of his deputies and residents of the Falk area, searched a wooded area about four miles southeast of Falk for several hours Tuesday after the creature was sighted by two men Tuesday morning as it crossed a road in front of their car. The men said it walked across the road and into a wooded area adjoining a soybean field where dozens of tracks were found Sunday. The tracks were about 13 and a half inches in length with three large toes. Sounds like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, uh, and then finally, some area residents have theorized that there may be more than one of the monsters since several differing descriptions have been reported. You know what that is? That's logic. There's several <laughs> different reports that don't look anything like each other. There are multiple monsters. 
Um, and then one last, another one I came across that I thought was really funny. This was a June 24th, 1971 article, also in the Hope Store. Uh, reward for Falk Monster, Dateline Texarkana. Um, a Texarkana man has offered a $200 reward for the Falk monster. Raymond Scoggins, a former resident of Falk, has offered the reward if the monster is brought in alive. Quote, I believe in the monster. I want to preserve it in a zoo or wherever it belongs, Scroggins <laughs> said. <laughs> I want to discourage the killing of it. Scoggins said that – and his name is spelled differently different times in this article. Sometimes it says Scoggins, sometimes Scroggins. Also, the article spells Frank Shambach's name wrong. I looked him up. Wait, wait this name. is Associated Press? Uh, it says AP, yeah. I don't know. Wow. AP style was a little a little lax back in the late 80s, <laughs> I guess. So these are, these are not especially well-written articles. They're just repeating the same words and sentence structure again and again. Um uh, but anyway, it finishes. Scoggins said that the authenticity of the monster will have to be verified by three city officials. The deadline for reward is December 31st. So why does he put a deadline on it? He's like, after that, you can kill it. I don't even care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe it was a calculated um, uh, uh, you know, deadline because he's like, how long would it take someone to get a convincing ape suit? together or to ship in a dead ape from another part of the world. I've got to I've got to make sure that the deadline prevents this. Yeah. So anyway, this is the local lore that Charles B. Pierce is working with in in making the original Boggy Creek movie to which Boggy Creek 2 and the legend continues is the sequel. Absolutely. So, yeah, he's inspired by these these tales and he decides to to make what what ends up being kind of a a, a mockumentary. Uh this would be not the sequel, the main sequel we're talking about here today, this would be the original 1972 film, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Uh, he reportedly um, borrowed uh, a sum of money from uh, the big rig company that he'd worked for, mm. uh, getting $100,000 of the total $160,000 that he uh, wound up needing to finish the project. And, uh, and you know, since I've seen the sequel, the, the Legend and the Legend Continues, numerous times via Mystery Science Theater 3000 over the years, uh, this is one of those bad films that I've, I've seen, at least in riff form, far more than I've seen, uh, you know, classic <laughs> films. Any good movie, films. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So since I'm super familiar with, with, uh, with the sequel, I thought, well, I'm going to see The Legend of Boggy Creek, the original 1972 film, the one that started everything and, and kicked off um, – uh, Pierce's career. I'm going to watch that. Is it a beautiful uh, work of art? It is. It, in a way, it's it's very interesting to to watch it and see the, the genesis um, of 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 all of this. You know, mm -hmm. of his career and the Boggy Creek franchise, as, such as it is. Uh, it is very much a mockumentary. You know, think you know recreations on Unsolved Mysteries or In Search of or something, mm -hmm. and you're you're in the right area. Okay. It was filmed on location. Um, in this uh, this this uh, tri-state area that we're talking about, this swampy region um, near Falk, uh, Arkansas, and and it uses mostly non-actors playing themselves, doing like little interview segments about uh, the adventures they had or the sightings they had concerning the creature, and then recreations of those scenes. So it's it's a very it's a weird film because it's first of all it's rated G. It's just straight up rated G. It is. It's it and it's uh, so there's no you know violence or profanity or you know nudity or anything like that. It's it's you know pretty clean film, and, uh, and but it's also very lovingly shot. There are lots of of long scenes 
of of just the the wilderness, this kind of desolate winter swampland mm-hmm. uh, that does really a great job of setting the scene, of giving you a taste of what this land is. I think ultimately, you know, far better than we we even see in the sequel, even though that one dips into this as well. Um, so he does a great job of establishing the, the the geography of the place. There's great sound, lots of lots of just big stretches where there's no narration, though there is some wonderful narration. Uh, but there's also just a lot of nature sounds, so that works really well. And then the the depictions of the locals are quite. It's quite nice because you know it's like a celebration not only of the rural landscape but also of of sort of rural uh, Arkansas America because. These are not like stock hillbilly characters, you know. This is not Deliverance. These are not people hamming it up and playing like dangerous or deranged rednecks. Like they, they like you feel might get like, in the sequel, <laughs> right? Yeah, these are just very normal folks, you know, trappers and farmers, wives and children um, who are not actors <laughs> recreating these scenes, but but in some cases reasonably well. Um, so it's it, it's a very calm film. Like it's it's weird. I it's 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 not bad at all. Uh, it's also not like amazing. It's not one of these films where you're just like, oh man, this moment and that moment. Uh, it has a very chill vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ha- it makes pretty decent use of what is clearly a gorilla costume. <laughs> You know, shooting it sparingly and from a distance and creating the kind of vague sightings that are often part of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a weird use of both folk music. There are several sung uh, numbers in there. One I noticed uh, on the credits, uh, it's attributed to a vocalist by the name of Chuck Bryant. Um, oh, that's could, funny. Could, yeah, not not the same Chuck Bryant, obviously, but... It, it made me wonder, could it be? But no, it's not. Uh, but there's also jazz music. It's kind of like a jazzy um, score to the picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the final sequence is pretty fun in it as well because it has this family and this house, and this is where the squatch, uh, the the um, the Boggy Creek creature, starts showing up and sticking its arm, its gorilla arm, through the window and scaring everybody. There's a lot of shooting into the darkness uh, in this sequence, and there's a wonderful bit where they 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 call the local sheriff. He comes out. And again, this non-actor, and he's like, well, what you probably got is a, you got a, a wildcat living under your house here. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you this shotgun and this light, uh, and you just, uh, you know, fend for yourselves. I'll come back to pick the shotgun and the light up in the morning. <laughs> Which is one of these scenes that at once feels ridiculous, but also you're like, yeah, that's probably exactly how it happened, you yeah. know? Yeah, 19, 19, early 1970s rural Arkansas, that, that, that sounds about right. This is your shotgun problem. Yeah. Now, um, just a, a few other words here about uh, 72's Boggy Creek film. Again, mostly non-actors playing themselves, with the only notable exceptions being just a couple of people. One, Sandra Peabody appears apparently uncredited, and she went on to be something of a grindhouse scream queen of the early 70s, and, and apparently trained under in New York City under uh, Sanford uh, Mesner. So, uh, and I understand she herself teaches acting to this day. Huh. Uh, also, there's an actor named Gene Ross who shows up. He plays a, a hunter in this, and he did a fair amount of work doing bit parts in films like Goonies and even Friday the 13th, the final chapter in which he played a cop. Another hunter in the film is played by Bill Hunt, who uh, didn't really go on to have any kind of acting career, but he went on to have a long career in special effects hmm. as part of Weta and other groups. So this is a guy who ended up working on films like Avatar and the Lord of the Rings films. Whoa, from Boggy Creek to Avatar. Yeah. 
So so anyway, it's uh, it, it's an interesting film, and certainly historically in terms of this franchise and just Bigfoot films in general, uh, because the thing is, it was a huge success. This was a huge drive-in cinema success. I've seen it credited as being the 10th highest grossing film of 1972. So wow. we're really talking about Blair Witch territory for Pierce here. You know, it launches a career that ultimately saw him direct a total of 13 films, several of them westerns. Uh, at least two of them Bigfoot films. Uh, but there are a couple of notable standouts from his career worth mentioning here. Uh, first of all, there's, and I think you might have seen this one, Joe, oh, 1976's yeah. The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Yeah, I th- uh, th- I thought the only one I'd seen was was Boggy Creek too, but no, I- I've seen Town That Dreaded Sundown. It is supposedly important in the history of, I don't know, the development of slasher movies. I rem- It's been a while, but I remember being not, all that into it it's got like so it's sort of a true crime slasher movie which is an idea Mm. i don't really love to begin with uh i mean some slasher movies claim to be based on a true story but they're not i think maybe this one actually is uh but it it brings in elements that are like there's one scene where somebody kills somebody with a knife tied to the end of a trombone slide (laughs) they're going like and they stab them yeah all right. Well, that, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I was familiar with it just by reputation. Again, because of its supposed place in the history of slashers. I mean, it has that. It has that sort of real, real life documentary kind of vibe. But then it's also intercut with this extremely weird, hammy, stagey stuff like the trombone murder. Mm. Now, another film. This is one I, I haven't seen, but I've seen trailers for it, and I, I kind of want to check it out at some point. Is The Norseman from 1978? This is a Vikings in North America movie that Pierce shot, starring Lee Majors. Uh, looks extremely bad. <laughs> so uh, Pierce uh, got to work with uh, with a number of of interesting character actors back in the day. A lot of them, you know, people who did a lot of TV, uh, but they include uh, Jack Elam. You're familiar with Jack Elam, right? I'm not the, sure I am. Who is that? You you would recognize him because he has kind of like a like one eye that stares off to the side. He kind of has a big hammy face. Oh, he's just like classic cowboy uh, ruffian character actor. Yep, yep. Looked him up. I recognize him now. So yeah, Jack Elam is in multiple films. Like he's he's the the main guy. He is Jack Elam is to uh, Charles B. Pierce as Ron Perlman is to um, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Oh, okay, okay. But he also worked with such names as Dennis Fimple, who uh, a lot of people recognize from films of, of this era. Uh, Slim Pickens, Andrew Pine, uh, weirdly or perhaps fittingly, uh, Iron Eyes Cody shows up in one of his um, uh, Native American-themed films. Iron Eyes Cody, of course, famous for being a completely fake Native American who acted in tons of stuff, including the the the, the, the crying Indian, the notorious crying Indian uh, trailer uh, anti-littering campaign. Mm-hmm. Vic Morrow shows up in one of his films. Oh wow! Is that the Norseman? Um. You know, I don't recall offhand. Oh, okay. I was just going through them all. He's, okay. Vic, there's some Vic Morrow content in there for anyone who wants it. Uh, Michael Parks shows up, Peter Fonda, but mostly it's just Jack Elam showing up in every picture. He also, Pierce also wrote a screenplay that became the Dirty Harry movie Sudden Impact from 1983. Wow, that is kind yeah. of hard to believe. That's a big mainstream movie. Yeah, I think Pierce was involved like a non, I think it was like an uh, art direction or set direction uh, role on the outlaw Josie Wales and somehow was able to pitch this screenplay to Eastwood during that. I think that's the rough um, 
story behind this. So anyway, his story for sudden imp- uh, somehow became sudden impact, uh-huh. and um, I have I don't think I've seen sudden impact from 1983, but it is by by most estimations not one of the good Dirty Harry films. Uh, so it's not 70, 1971's Dirty Harry or 1973's Magnum Force, which starred Hal Holbrook as the villain. But Sudden Impact did introduce the line, go ahead, make my day, which Pierce apparently wrote. Huh. Man, that is that is hard to believe. But I but I believe you. <laughs> uh, just like I believe all of the stories of the Boggy Creek monster and Charles B. Pierce apparently does, too, because that definitely comes through in the movie like one of the. This is one of those movies where, like, it is virtuous to believe in the monster, and it is it is a, a sign of a moral failing to not believe in it. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense watching the first one too, because there is a sense that this is a movie that believes in the land. This is a movie that believes in the people who live here, and therefore you have to believe in the creature because the creature is kind of a product of both. And uh, it's yeah, so so you very much see that 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 theme in the first film. Now, as for the rest of the cast of Boggy Creek Two and the Legend Continues, I was looking through it. It is mostly a collection of players who appear to have only acted in other Charles B. Pierce movies. Yeah, and in some cases, people that either were possibly romantic interests of Pierce, or in one case, was his son. Yes, his right? son. One of the main yeah. characters in Boggy Creek Two is. Chuck Pierce Jr. And I think the way it appears in the opening credits is you see Charles Pierce and then you see Charles B. Pierce. Yes. And Charles B. Pierce is the father. Yes. So father and son on screen together, um, just doing a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, because, yeah, if, we're, if we haven't been firm on the matter, Charles B. Pierce plays the anthropologist in the sequel uh, and the legend continues. It is a fabulous performance. It is it is Garth Marenghi esque to yes. draw in a little a, a dark place because he plays such a confident, you know, self assured, capable character. Um, you know, he's a he's he's a warrior poet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and man, it's um, it, it's a sight to behold. Yeah, Charles B. Pierce is uh, actor, author, dream weaver. Yeah, you get the sense that he he takes himself and the the role just very seriously. It's yeah. it's wonderful. Now, uh, you said that may, uh, most of these these people are just um, you know members of the the Charles B. Pierce players, and right. I think that's that's mostly the case. But uh, two standouts. First of all. There's a big creature and a little creature in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, the little creature is supposed to be like a young uh, uh, Boggy Creek monster. Uh, apparently, according to IMDb, it was played by Victor Williams. Um, this was his first screen credit, but he went on to have a really great television career, still active television career. He played a member, of, for instance, of the Guilty Remnant in the HBO series The Leftovers. Uh, but he's had mm-hmm. just notable I, roles. I Oh, uh, leftovers, uh, especially the first season, which is more based, which is the, the based on the book, is is tremendous. Uh, the guilty remnant is like a cult that's dealing with this sort of mysterious rapture uh, mm. that has occurred, and um, and so he's one of the cult members in that. But he showed up on a number of television shows that I haven't watched and will probably never watch. Like I think he had a a recurring role on the King of Queens or something. Um, but anyway, a, a rare um, sighting of a very successful actor beginning uh, their career in uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek 2. 
But another character of, of interest in this film, and we'll talk about them in a little bit, is this character, uh, Old Man Crenshaw, who's kind of the the Colonel Kurtz of the of Boggy Creek Two, played by an actor by the name of Jimmy Clem. And I don't think Jimmy was was in much else. He was very much a Charles B. Pierce player. But oh boy, he's a he's he's wonderful in this. He's a he he's a lot of man, and he uh, he he brings it on the screen. It's amazing. I can't wait to get to talking about that part of the plot. But yeah, he he basically like he puts in a couple fingers a dip, and he's like, I saw a snail crawl along a razor's edge. <laughs> now that there's a man's kind of woman. Uh, yeah, he's got so many wonderful lines. Uh, just performs so authentically. You know, one thing I will say I really unironically like about this movie is the poster. The poster for Boggy Creek 2 has this strange uh, kind of setting sun across flat land, silhouetted days of heaven kind of look that I, I really appreciate. Yeah, everyone should look this up because this is a notable poster. Uh, it, and it's also interesting that the same artist created the poster for 1972's The Legend of Boggy Creek. So he came back for the sequel. The individual in question, someone you might have heard of, Ralph McQuarrie. I knew nothing about this guy before you were telling me this stuff. Oh, well, um, so he lived 1929 through 2012. He worked on uh, such films as Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. But as impressive uh, as these accolades are, they pale in comparison to his main achievement. He was one of the primary visual wonder workers on the original Star Wars film and its two initial sequels. Wow. So Macquarie is the man whose conceptual paintings designed such iconic looks as Darth Vader's helmet, uh, R2-D2, 3CPO. If you love looking at something in the original Star Wars trilogy, um, there is a high probability that you have Ralph uh, Macquarie to thank for much of its design. You really can't overstate his role in the creation of the visual Star Wars universe. This is the most tremendous connection that we have established yet in in Weird House Cinema. This is pretty amazing. Also, though, I have to ask: did you did you mean was three CPO an earlier version in in concept of C three PO, or did you mean C three PO? That was an, that was a typo, but um, that I just read out loud from my notes. <laughs> but it's in a way it's accurate because uh-huh. a lot of the the time with McQuarrie's early designs for uh, for what would become Star Wars. Uh, you know, there everything's a little bit different. So if you can look back at these these wonderful illustrations, uh, which there are published uh, volumes of, and you'll see a version of Star Wars that is the same yet slightly different, has a slightly different feel to it, and feels like like a pre-existing myth cycle. You know, it it I feel like it adds to the mystique and the wonder of what was created. Um, and, and it's it's also been utilized in in curious ways, and uh, in, in, no, not curious ways, in, in very intriguing ways, by such subsequent projects as, uh, say, the animated Rebels show, and and other subsequent Star Wars projects. Where what they'll do is they'll go back to Ralph McQuarrie's designs, and they'll take something that either wasn't used or was tweaked somewhat. Uh, and they'll, but they'll use the original design and create something that is new to the Star Wars universe, but based on one of the pre-existing designs. Uh, and I'll, I'll touch on one example of that here in a bit. Oh, I love that. Well, I, I mean, I can't help but notice if you worked on Boggy Creek Two and on Star Wars that both have a large, hairy humanoid creature in them. Yep, and that that is that is the direct connection here to discuss the connection between the Boggy Creek creature and the Wookiee character Chewbacca. Wow. 
So uh, there's a wonderful article out there on kitbash.com by Michael Hillman. That's H-E-I-L-E-M-A-N-N. Uh, that's, that's excellent. I recommend you check this out if you're curious about how how ideas in Star Wars came together in general, but specifically how Ju- Chewbacca came together. And uh, I, I this is one of the sources I cited in writing a piece for HowStuffWorks.com earlier this year on the connection between Bigfoot and Chewbacca. But basically, this is what uh, supposedly happened. Lucas asked Macquarie to create something like, quote, a lemur with fur over his whole body and a big, huge ape-like figure. <laughs> so he, this resulted in a concept that, if you look it up, it's kind of startling. It has these, it's tall, it has these big eyes. Um, it's, you know, while Chewbacca is dog-like and uh, relaxing, uh, to, to look at. Uh, this creature yeah, is kind of startling. Um, and so they ended up tweaking it in ways we'll discuss here in a second. But this, this early concept would go on to influence the design of the Lasat alien species, which debuted in the 2014 animated series Star Wars Rebels. I've got to say, I mean, I love the design, but this is not a good buddy sidekick. This thing yeah. looks disturbing. It looks kind of like a pervert. <laughs> yeah, it looks a bit a bit crazed. Uh, so Lucas came back to Macquarie with an inspiration image uh, to tweak this, an illustration of a uh, Janshi. Uh, this was a, an image created by John um, uh, Schoenher. Uh, for a George R. R. Martin short story in a July 1975 edition of Analog. What? What? <laughs> yeah. So basically, it was a George R. R. Martin story that had these kind of like uh, fur squatch like uh, alien creatures. And Lucas is like, uh, "How about we tweak it more in this direction?" And this is a this is like decades before a Game of Thrones was published. Oh yeah, this was back when George R. R. Martin's main name was as a you know a fiction writer. So as Wait, um, fi- is how oh you mean like a sci-fi fiction yeah yeah, yeah as a short fiction and yeah. novels and whatnot but before yeah uh, before fantasy became you know now we think of Game of Thrones but there was a time when it was more uh, you know space aliens and whatnot so as uh, as Heilman explains uh, Macquarie tweaked the image and combined it with pre-existing aspects of uh, of the Chewbacca character design. Um, but again, Macquarie had already at this point created images of hairy creatures for the original Boggy Creek poster. So we can roughly see this po- the poster for the 1972 film as being one of Chewbacca's design ancestors. We're all connected, man. It's all just yeah. part, of, part of it's one big dream in the giant's mind. It kind of is, yeah. The, the more you focus on these connections, the more it is. But I, I guess the <laughs> bottom line, bottom line. The original Boggy Creek and its sequel have just amazing posters by one of the greats. Yeah. And uh, on the surface of things, you can you can easily say that those posters outshine everything else about the projects. It, it's further proof that you, me, Macquarie, uh, George R. R. Martin, Charles B. Pierce, and the Boggy Creek creature are all living in the blue eye of a giant named Macomber. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back into The Legend of Boggy Creek 2 uh, and The Legend Continues, which, again, is the actual title of this film. Uh, I think it's time to talk about the plot. Okay, so first thing you see when the movie starts is you get opening credits with no music at all, which is a, which is a bold choice. There's just like the sweet whisper of frog song. 
It's like, uh, you know, you got some, some gators whispering sweet nothings in your ear and mm-hmm. you, you just see names appearing in this very cool yellow, almost kind of, kind of grindhouse font, uh, names appearing like Rick parentheses rock Hildreth. <laughs> Uh, so, so, you know, you see Charles B. Pierce, Charles Pierce, uh, maybe some other Pierces. There, there's a whole gaggle of Pierces involved in this film. And then it comes up on B-roll of the, of the Swamplands and you get narration with Charles B. Pierce himself. Of course, he wrote, directed the film, starred in it and narrates it. And he says, uh, the swamps of Southern Arkansas, you know, some of these cypress have grown here since before the Vikings set sail. And he keeps just describing the, the, the swamps over and over again, saying like the rivers and the water and their murky, murky, soggy earth. He, he basically uses every single word except boggy and Creek. <laughs> but then the first thing you see is you, you get a monster attack before any characters are introduced. So there, you see the water, and then there's like a bubble monster swimming underneath the water's surface, and there's a deer swimming, and then the bubble monster attacks the swimming deer, which is accompanied by this funky, deep electric organ music. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a da-da-da-da kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, I guess a little bit jawsy, but this mm-hmm. this ape is a swimming ape. The movie makes very clear. And then finally you get a man in a gorilla costume dragging a dead deer up onto the bank. And I think this is not supposed to be a guy in a costume. This is supposed to be the creature. I will say you mentioned that the original Boggy Creek does a good job of keeping the monster at a distance, kind of, you know, keeping it obscured so that you don't see it too close. It doesn't look too obvious. This movie does not do a good job with that. It gives you a (laughs) real close examination of like the zipper on the suit and, and seeing the people's mouth through the mouth of the mask. I should clarify that the first film mostly does a good job. It keeps like there, there's maybe one scene late in the film where you get a little too close to the gorilla costume and you, you kind of see the flaws, but mm. for the most part, it does a good job. So it's it clearly likes to kill and eat deer, and then immediately it just cuts to, cuts to football. Are you ready for mm-hmm. some football? And it's a Razorbacks college football game. This, the football stadium here is so dystopian. Something about it. It's the bleakest thing in the whole movie, even though they're, <laughs> they're deep in this swamp country for the rest of it. Because at this football stadium, there's just no shade. And like a million people are just crammed hip to hip, all wearing the same colors. And then here in the middle of the crowd is Charles B. Pierce wearing dictator sunglasses like he looks like tito and then he's got on a tie at the football game well yeah i always thought of him as as hank williams jr glasses you know okay yeah yeah there's some overlap there yeah eastern european (laughs) dictator or hank williams jr it it works either way (laughs) but uh so then we get uh, the, the character who is played by chuck pierce jr he answers a phone in i guess what is supposed to be charles b pierce's office and he he somebody's asking for him and he's like get him he's in the stadium with 75,000 insane hog collars and i think <laughs> hog collars is what razorbacks fans are called are they i don't um, hmm. i i haven't heard that myself but uh, except in this film but uh, I, I will say I will say this about the razorbacks scene the the football team I, you may see it as dystopia but i think uh, the viewer is invited to see it as 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 more utopian uh, but also just like a pure order. Like this is a realm of order. Yes. Here is the the civilized world itself yes. as, as 
as presented in a college football game. Like this is this is the the world of civilization. Much of the film is going to be about leaving this world to depart into the you know the heart of darkness into the into the the wild lands where the squatch uh, reigns king. But uh, but but this is about showing uh, the world for, that we have to leave to get there. You're a thousand percent right. This is Hrothgar's mead hall, and then you have to go out <laughs> into the dark to face Grendel's mother. Or this is supposed to be the Parthenon before you like leave to go out into the lands of the pine bender. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, so he's in the stadium with 75,000 insane hog collars, wearing his dictator sunglasses and his tie under the hot sun. And Chuck B. Pierce goes and gets his dad. or I guess he's not supposed to be his dad in the movie. He is his professor, I guess. Uh, and, and Chuck B. Pierce, uh, I've, I've taken to calling him CBP. He comes back to his office and he takes the call and then he immediately announces, OK, you know, whatever was announced, on, uh, whatever was reported to him on this call it necessitates a trip to Texarkana, the southwestern portion of uh, of Arkansas. There's, a, I guess, a city called Texarkana right on the border with Texas. And uh, so he's going to go along with several students, one of which is they make – they emphasize this very early on, one of which is a young lady who is not going to be at home in the woods. There's a lot of Charles B. Pierce like rolling his eyes as she applies makeup and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so then we immediately cut to a good old Jeep montage with road narration and and the character introduces himself. So Charles B. Pierce is playing someone who also has a middle initial. He goes, my name is Brian C. Lockhart. My friends call me Doc, (laughs) though I don't remember if anybody calls him Doc after that anywhere in the movie, maybe. Um, uh, he, He says, I'm a professor of anthropology located deep in the Ozark Mountains. And uh, so I don't know exactly why the professor of anthropology is really into cryptids. Maybe the idea is that the Boggy Creek creature is some type of human. Mm, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Or just, you know, he's interested. It would it would imply that he's more interested in the beliefs of the people uh, about the creature. But Could of be, course, yeah. that's not really how the film plays out. Right. I guess they don't uh, specify whether he's a physical anthropologist or a cultural anthropologist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, th- that would seem to make a big difference, but I'm not sure. Uh, But so they're going to the swamp and then along for the ride, you get introduced to all the students. I was trying to hear what their names were in the narration. This is what I got best. So Chuck Pierce Jr., the director's son, is playing a student named Tim Thorne, who is just shirtless the entire movie. Absolutely allergic to shirts. He also has something that I think might be a boil, but it looks like a supernumerary nipple. He has like a third nipple-like object above one of his nipples mm-hmm. um, and just shirt off the entire time. And then the other two students are someone who – it sounds like he introduces her as Miss Landwalker. I think maybe her name is Leslie as established in other scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she might be something Ann Walker, but I'm going to call her Miss Landwalker. And then the other one is Tanya Yazzie. And uh, Miss Landwalker, by the way, is – they just go full – 80s dance like she looks like she's about to go out dancing at tech noir yes they are not um strong characters in this film they i mean they're they basically exist to to gripe about the woods to not be able to handle the woods to be in danger and to be saved by the male characters yeah uh i would also say the 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 chuck pierce jr character is not strong his only characteristic is shirtless They're, they're basically two characters in this film and it's Charles B. Pierce and Crenshaw, who we'll get to later. Yes. 
So a lot of the narration is just like encyclopedic geographical information. <laughs> you get narration that cuts mm-hmm. in to say Texarkana is located on the border of Arkansas and Texas. It's, you know, X miles from this thing. Uh, so after the, the Jeep montage, uh, CBP stops in a general store to buy cartridges for his gun because that's what you do when you're going out on uh, an anthropological research mm-hmm. mission. And the locals hanging around in the store immediately start to mock him when he asks about the Boggy Creek creature. They're all basically hillbilly Carl Sagan's. They're like, only people who believe in the monster are drunks and city folks who want to get their names in a fancy newspaper. <laughs> and uh, and there's also a, there's a lady in the store who I, I couldn't help but notice. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, but she really does. She looks like Justin Wilson from the old PBS cooking videos. Okay. <laughs> You know, this this scene in the film uh, definitely uh, calls back to the first Boggy Creek film where you had uh, – there's one key scene where it's a bunch of old co- old codgers sitting around a, a general store uh, talking about the creature. So like this is him just kind of recreating this encounter. But the weird thing is it's inverted. Now, you mentioned earlier the idea that uh – you know, he, it's because uh, he's got some love for the locals that he frames believing in the creature as a morally virtuous thing to do and disbelieving as morally bad. But in this movie, the locals disbelieve and they make fun of the big city professor for believing. Yeah, I, I wonder yeah, – one wonders how that came to be if that you know comes in the wake of making the first film. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, another thing about this movie is that there are just Arkansas hats everywhere, everywhere hats that say Arkansas. That's interesting because you really didn't see that in the, the first film. In the first film, everybody's kind of like all the, the, the men are wearing just uh, like featureless white T-shirts. And I don't know, there's a plainness to to what everybody's wearing. I don't know how much that was intentional or just hmm. people you know showed up what they were wear- wearing, what they were wearing. I don't know. But uh, yeah, the Arkansas hats uh, – certainly are are a force in the sequel. I, I should note that as they're leaving the store, uh, Charles B. Pierce threatens to shoot the locals if they prank him, which is, <laughs> which is nice. Uh, next, they go to a place they call W.L. Slogan's Farm. Uh, mm-hmm. where, this is a place where some notable barn mischief has been documented in the past. This is, We have barn mischief, folks. Uh, but – Charles B. Pierce goes on to tell the story of W.L. Slogan, and as best I can tell, the story goes like this. Slogan is bringing his cows in from the field one day long ago. He puts them up in their stalls. Spooky music begins to play. And then Slogan, by the way, Slogan, they've dressed him up so that he looks and walks like a farmer in a musical, like he's about to start singing a song about chickens. And then Slogan just sees an ape-like creature in the barn and that's it. Then it walks away and he walks away. And now the barn is famous for, for the barn mischief. Huh. Yeah, this is this is great because this is another scene that's pretty much a recreation of something from the first film. Um, and it's very much in keeping with the first film. Like this is a, like a little pocket of mockudrama uh, thrown in on the journey into the wilds. And this happens throughout the movie. They just keep stopping so that uh, Charles B. Pierce can tell a story of a sighting of the, the Boggy Creek creature. Yeah, sometimes frightening, sometimes uh, clearly told for laughs. Yeah, and then uh, so he finishes telling the story, and then they just leave. They get in the Jeep and go off to greener pastures. Then they come across a dead deer on the road, and this is notable for some reason. I'm not sure why. Like, if you drive around in the south, you're going to come across dead deer on the road a lot. Mm -hmm. But they decide to stop and debate for a while about what killed it. 
Chuck Jr. states pretty much twice in a row in the exact same words, I don't believe any car or truck hit this deer. I don't believe any car or truck killed this deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they move on. They set up camp in the woods. Uh, I think they're trying to go to a place where the monster has been sighted. And we should stop and note something about the the situation of this campsite. It Charles B. Pierce has a camper trailer that basically has NORAD inside it. They're like computers with motion sensors and all these all this technology. It turns into that scene in Congo where they set up the perimeter with all of the like mm-hmm. cameras and sensors and laser guns and stuff. Yeah, I mean it. It's possible that uh, that he was inspired by Congo because the the novel came out in 1980. So oh, okay, possibly read it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly Charles B. Pierce is into films about uh, killer apes. You know, <laughs> well, mysterious the movie, apes. And, but the movie and Congo is an ape movie. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But that wouldn't come out. The movie wouldn't come out until later. So he, he would have had to have read the book. Yeah, he would have had to have read the book, which I think had that scene in it. Yeah. Uh, essentially. Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, we'll come back to that because it figures into the plot more later. Because So they, then they move on. Uh, they go to another ape stop, a, a sort of a, a monster house, a house where something supposedly happened one time. But they don't really get into it because as they arrive at the house, they are attacked by a mad dog. And then in this interminable scene, they just run around trying to hide from the mad dog. And then – warning uh, unfortunately this movie does not pass the does the dog die test uh, they just yeah. they shoot the dog that is foaming at the mouth um and there was a <laughs> there was a great subtitle when i was watching it uh the subtitle was just brian groans uh <laughs> and, and afterwards rachel and i were talking about how this movie was the brian groans town massacre yeah <laughs> Another thing that becomes clear is this movie is very much about jorts. Everyone's wearing cutoff jeans that are way too short. Just totally all the characters, male and female, are in really insufficient jean shorts that border on being just like jean bikini bottoms. Yeah. <laughs> but then uh, so you get back to uh, right after they kill the dog, it just immediately cuts to a lighthearted driving montage with happy music. And then they come back to camp and then Charles B. Pierce just starts telling us things that we know about the monster. OK, so what do we know about the monster? We know they're nocturnal, even though a lot of the sightings seem to happen in the daytime. Uh, well, or at least the, the footage was shot uh, day for night. <laughs> yes, there's that. a good bit of that in the movie. Uh, they roam about uh, at night in search of food. They emit a foul odor, and I think he says they go in single file to hide their numbers. Mm. That sounds a bit of, like a bit of cryptid uh, lore right there, huh? Yeah, and so we – well, it's like that in those newspaper articles. Remember how like the, there were different appearances of the monsters, so it could be concluded that there were multiple monsters? Mm-hmm. And then the uh, – there's, there's another thing that's funny, which is that when – Charles B. Pierce starts narrating. Sometimes we just see B-roll of the creature. It's, it's like yep. it's a nature documentary and we just see the creature walking around and doing stuff. It's not connected to the present action. It's not like walking around in the presence of the characters. No character can see it. It's just as if it were stock footage. Uh, but then we get to one of my favorite parts of the movie where Charles B. Pierce tells the story of another sighting and it becomes Blowout, the Otis Tucker story. So this is the 
what happened to a guy named Otis Tucker. He's driving at night on a lonely country road and he stops to change a tire. And then the Boggy Creek monster just pops up and kind of knocks him on the head. And then Charles B. Pierce tells us that Otis Tucker never regained consciousness, (laughs) which leads to one of the great conundrums about this movie, which is how did he know this story? Then he's the only person there and he never regained consciousness after the event. Didn't we see a scene similar to this mm-hmm. in uh, that Savage Squatch movie, Night of the Demon? Yes. You're- Isn't there a scene where like a Squatch murders two people by the roadside, and yet somehow this is like, presented as if a story that was known and told? Yes, yes, exactly. This um, th- That happens, I think, multiple times in this other movie. Squatch kills somebody. There's nobody else present to witness it, and then it is told from one character to another as a like an account that was witnessed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, after telling the story, Charles says, anyway, it's getting late. Uh, <laughs> it looks like it's about 11 a.m. out. And then he decides to run some tests on his camper equipment. So the next 20 minutes of the movie become a Michael Crichton techno thriller. It's all mm-hmm. looking at radar blips on the screen of the computers in the camper van. And, you know, it turns into a get out of there. It's coming right for you kind of thing. We got a bogey on radar. Uh, it's closing in. So it's like those shark movies where there's a character down and they're all radio radioing to him, you know, get out of there right now. Mm-hmm. And so everybody gets back into the camper and later that night, the monster attacks and Charles B. Pierce gets right up close with it and he shoots it with a dart of some kind out of a rifle. It's not, it's not clear what the dart is, but the monster just sort of rips the dart out of its torso and runs away. One assumes he bought that, that trank dart at the general store, right? Oh yeah. They, they sell those at the general store. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we get another story, like another anecdote. This time, the people did survive, so it is clear how you could have heard the story. This is the story of Oscar Cull Potter, uh, aka Outhouse Oscar, and yes. he's he's looking for the Sears Roebuck catalog because he has to go to the outhouse, and he does. And then the monster attacks him in the outhouse, and then he gets poop all over his pants. And the characters regard this story as hilarious. Almost, they're almost losing sanity from how funny it is. If this is yeah, this is a great. Well, it is a great sequence because yeah, it is presented as being hilarious. It is a bit hee haw in its uh, actual presentation, yeah. but but is amusing nonetheless. Uh, there's also a, a, a scene in the first Boggy Creek in which a character goes into the bathroom, and we're, we're, we see this scene through the window, you know, shot from outside. He goes into the bathroom, and he's clearly sitting down on the toilet, uh, you know, uh, presumably to poop, and that's when the Sasquatch starts coming in through the window. <laughs> you know? Like, why, why, why is the Sasquatch coming in now? Why that room? Well, um, that's when that's when we're vulnerable, you know. This, you know, this the the whole subject of vulnerability whilst pooping. Uh, this is a, this is a favorite topic of mine that we'll have to return to in the future if we ever discuss some Ghoulies movies. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. you do see it in some in some terrible films from time to time where they just can't. It's like it's the idea of like if I'm if I'm pooping, something could come and try and kill me and eat me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you see it in Birdemic, for example. There's a scene where a, a character is peeing and she's killed by birds. I mean, it's a good reason never to go to the bathroom unless you've got like a computer that's got a radar readout surrounding you and you, you can, you know, chart anything that's on the way. Yeah. Charles B. Pierce has his, his toilet system secure. 
So next in the movie, uh, Professor Brian Lockhart, I, I keep forgetting, I just call him Charles B. Pierce. CBP goes to meet with Sheriff Dewey from Scream. It is just David Arquette, pretty much. It's a a sheriff with a mustache. They meet in a restaurant that this is never explained. There's just a gigantic watermelon sitting on a table behind them. <laughs> and then Dewey tells a story. He says, well, one time I went fishing and I came home with a bunch of fish on a line. Then, you know, I was going around back when I got home to the fish gutting shed to gut them. And on the way, I got attacked by a creature. And this it shows a reenactment, as it always does. And the creature is the size and texture of Elmo. It's, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it has fur like the Boggy Creek creature. But he gets attacked by Elmo, pretty much. It's a little baby monster. It could be kind of lumpy from the Star Wars holiday special a little bit. Oh, yeah. And then mm-hmm. the little baby monster steals his fish and then leaves with the bigger monster. All right, so now he has a lead. He has he has a lead to finding the creature. Right, and the and Dewey gives him another lead. He says, "There's somebody you can talk to. You got to talk to Old Man Crenshaw." He says he's lived mm-hmm. on the bottoms his whole life, and apparently Crenshaw is always like talking to the police and people in town, complaining about the creature coming around his cabin. He lives like way out there in a place that's not accessible by car. And Sheriff Dewey says, old man Crenshaw always said one thing about the creature. And then I'm like, okay, I'm ready. What what is it? Here you go. It's an incredible runner and an unbelievable swimmer. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, (laughs) what that's what he says about it. (laughs) All right. Well, let's keep going. We got to get we got to get to Crenshaw. Okay. 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 So much to say about Crenshaw. CBP. So he's yeah. He's like okay. Got to find Crenshaw. So back at the camp, uh, there's Tech Noir Landwalker. She's mad about being in the woods. She wants makeup and she wants city food. She doesn't like baloney. So she and Tanya steal the jeep and try to drive off by themselves. They get stuck in the mud because it is said that they don't know how to put the jeep in four wheel drive. you know, they, they talk a lot about being stuck is 15 miles out of this bottom. We're stuck in the swamp. They think a, a gator is going to get them. And then the monster attacks while they're in the Jeep. And it's like, it's menacing them. It's like, look at my teeth. And it goes, Arr! and then they mm-hmm. walk back to camp uneventfully. <laughs> and so the next morning they all get together to go to the sulfur river. And then it cuts to the sulfur river. There's like a beach area. I don't know if it's natural. Maybe it's, it's like a swimming hole basically in the river. And there are children swimming and playing in the water. A lot of the children are chewing bubble gum while they're swimming. I don't think you're supposed to do that. Uh, the parents, but you know, don't don't let your kids chew gum in the water. Uh, the movie briefly becomes Jaws. There's even music that rips off the Jaws theme. Was a child who looks like the bubble monster under the water is approaching swimmers, but then he jumps up and he he just yells Jaws. And then our heroes show up, and Charles B. Pierce, when he shows up at the beach, is dressed exactly like Fidel Castro. <laughs> He's wearing like a like a green shirt with a bunch of pockets and a green Fidel Castro hat and the sunglasses. I I can't imagine that's on purpose. But anyway, they're they're here at the beach to rent a boat. And uh, I, I just as a side note, I noticed something very interesting when they're going out to rent the boat. They walk past a beach umbrella that looked so familiar to us, and then we realized what it was. This beach umbrella must have been mass produced in the seventies because it is the exact same umbrella that's on the cover of the Neil Young album on the beach. 
Oh yeah, I had to look this up because uh, I'm I'm not I'm not super um, uh, well versed in every Neil Young album, but yeah, this one's from '74. This is the album that had uh, "Walk On" yeah on it yeah, uh, for as well the as Vampire Blues and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, but it's yeah, it's a very singular umbrella. It's like this kind of kind of semi gaudy yellow umbrella. Yeah, with the white fringe and it's got a floral mm-hmm. print on the inside. Yeah, it's 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 pretty. It's the same one in the movie, so very wow. cool connection. Yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody who has that exact umbrella because I mean it's cool looking. It's it's like today this would be. I, I have some friends who would kill for this this umbrella and chair set. Yeah, r- right in, right in. If you have personal experience, uh, but so anyway, they rent a boat. They're going to go try to go upriver and find Old Man Crenshaw. But on the way, they get harassed by jet ski hooligans who are like, there's uh, like a kid who's like a biker but on a jet ski, mm-hmm. and then the jet ski hooligan. I, I was like, why are we seeing this? But then I realized, oh, they got to set up a suspenseful scene because it's been a while. So the jet ski hooligan gets knocked off his hog by the creature swimming around in the water, but he gets back on it and he escapes. Yeah, this is a scene that's very much uh, in, in in the same vein as in any moment in a slasher film mm-hmm. where the, the, the killer kills somebody who deserves it because there's a sense of like, you know, jet ski hooligans. Uh, you know, they're just they're just ruining it for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all right that the Squatch is murdering them. But he gets away. So the Squatch doesn't <laughs> kill anybody in the movie except maybe Otis Tucker. <laughs> yeah, but he does not like uh, jet skis. Yeah. Uh, and then they're, while they're going upriver, there's more CBP narration. He's complaining about how nature should be kept unspoiled like this. And then finally we arrive at the Crenshaw cabin. He's got a river cabin <laughs> and it's Crenshaw time. And from here on, the movie is just maximum Crenshaw. Crenshaw arrives like a hurricane and completely takes over the film. Crenshaw, I think I already described him as being kind of the Colonel Kurtz of this film. But another way I think of him is is this. Joe, have you ever seen or read The Last Unicorn? No, I haven't. Well, there's a scene in The Last Unicorn where our character, who's a, a unicorn, trans, uh, well, she ends up being transformed into a human. But at this point, she's a unicorn. No one can see her, her horn. Uh, adults, normal people can't see it. So when a witch traps her she has to give her a fake horn so mm. that so that normal humans can behold her and she's put into this this circus of oddities where each cage has a different monster in it but almost all of the monsters are fake it's like a, an, an old lion uh, that is being that has a spell on it so that it looks like a, um, a manticore that sort of thing each and every one of these is an inauthentic magical creature except for one in one cage there is the harpy and the harpy we're told is the real deal the witch has cast no spell on this creature it's pure luck that she was able to capture it at all without dying and one day it will break free from the cage and kill her because it is more powerful than she is like it is the one pure thing at the center of this circus of illusion and that is what i feel crenshaw is in this film like uh, i know that there's an actor credited as playing the playing the character but i get the sense that like crenshaw is real crenshaw is this 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 black hole at the center of the film and he at any moment might break free and just consume everything yeah m87 crenshaw you're bringing tears to my eyes by the way (laughs) (laughs) absolutely crenshaw is is the is sui generis um how to describe him physically he's a no shirt single strap overalls guy (laughs) yep and he so they call they keep calling him old man crenshaw (laughs) I'm not sure how old he is. He looks like he could be in his late 30s with some rough living. 
Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he he's just a, a heavy, hard-worn late 30s, I feel. Like, that's what yeah. he looks like. Yeah, uh, he's got a big old beard, and he so they arrive at his house, and he's a little bit ornery at first, but then he says, my bark's worse than my bite, and they all have a set. And then Chuck Jr. just immediately takes his shirt off. He had a shirt on when they arrived, and he's just like, oh, I forgot, and he takes it off. <laughs> I don't know if he's trying to fit in with Crenshaw, because Crenshaw is a no-shirt guy as well. Crenshaw also has a curious headband on. Yes. Um, that um, that looks way too tight. Like, I'm not sure exactly what purpose it's serving on his body, but um, it's it's there and it's tight. Yeah. And then uh, Crenshaw and Tanya Yazi bond over dip. They, they like dip tobacco mm. together, which is great. And then it's established that Crenshaw knows the Boggy Creek creature. There, there are... Uh, uh, he reports that he hears the creature make a noise in the woods all night. Uh, and he he says there are multiple creatures. He says the little one looks just like the big one. And uh, <laughs> there's a weird thing here where they keep emphasizing that you can only get to Crenshaw's house by the river. But then when they show his house, you can see a road. You can see a road <laughs> right next to it. I don't know if they're trying to – if that was a goof or if they're like, oh, yeah, that road got closed off somehow. But there is a road there. Yeah, because again, it's it's they they do present it like yeah, the only way to get there is by the river. Like there is no civilized way into Crenshaw's country. Like his is the realm of wildness. And another thing I've forgotten to say so far, but this is absolutely true: every single wall in this film has mounted animal heads on it, including the mm-hmm. wall of. Uh, CBP's office at the beginning is a university office inside all the stores, all the houses, every wall has mounted heads. You get the impression that in Southwest Arkansas, like if you went into a porta potty, there'd be a mounted deer head inside it. Yeah. And this is, again, this is so weird to compare this, this house and these scenes to the original um, Boggy Creek film, because in that, again, these, they were, there was, there weren't like, um, ratcheting up any of the like the rural qualities of the people, it felt felt very kind of straightforward, and the sets were very simple and uh, almost really like they they shot it in a, an empty house and just moved in minimal furniture to make it look like someone lived there. But in, but this scene, Crenshaw's house is like oh, it's almost it's like Texas Chainsaw House levels of filling it with spooky junk. Yeah, uh, and then we so it's immediately clear that Crenshaw has a secret. He's got some kind of yep. plan going. That involves building big fires. Uh, he seems very interested in the fact that Charles B. Pierce's character is a doctor. He, he's confused mm-hmm. about the idea of being a doctor of something other than medicine. Uh, and there's this great line, which is actually like in a different context. This could be an amazing piece of dialogue. Crenshaw says to him, he says, now you got the book learning and the doctor power. <laughs> I love that. Uh, can can you explain what Crenshaw's plan is? I really don't understand what he was trying to do. Do you? Well, well, like you said, at night he has to tend my fires. Uh, he has to uh, keep these large blazes going. And uh, uh, apparently this is what has happened. He has obtained uh, a young creature and yeah. he is keeping the young creature. And at night – he has to uh, have these big blazes uh, to raise up these enormous fires to keep the, the 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 creature parent, the mother creature or what have you, at bay to keep it from just rampaging in and claiming its young one. But in terms of Crenshaw's master plan here, I'm not sure. Like, it's not like he loves the little creature and wants to, you know, keep him there as a pet. Like, but he, he also doesn't seem really. 
um, anxious to exploit this. You know, he's not say he doesn't. I don't remember there being anything where he's like, "Yep, I got I got letters out to the newspapers <laughs> about this," or I'm uh, trying to get a documentary shot. I'm just looking for funding. No, there's none of that. It's just like the, he just seems to want to keep it there. I'm going to sell it to the Ripleys, believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's deeper than we're giving any credit. You know, this is about ownership of the wilds. This is mm. this is the force of Crenshaw versus the force of the creature. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe we should chew a little more than we bite off here. Yeah, I mean, we got to consider the, just the the primordial mass of Crenshaw. That's right. Okay. Uh, so anyway, he, whatever his plan is, it involves trying to keep the big creature away while he's got the little one in his house. And then night falls. Chuck Jr. is still shirtless because he always is. Uh, then the, the main characters overpower Crenshaw and they give the little boggy Creek creature back to the big one and it departs. And, oh, and that's pretty much the end, right? You get the final yeah. narration where Charles B. Pierce kind of moralizes about, about nature and about traditions. And then in the, at the very end, he says, and the legend will continue because God intended it that way. Basically, Charles B. Pierce brings balance back to the force uh, yes. at the end of this. He, he puts things right because Crenshaw has disrupted everything and now it is, it is set in its appropriate place. But it's weird because Crenshaw is this guy who's like there's not even supposedly a road to his house. He's living out with the, with the wilderness and it takes this big city professor and his big city students, one of whom is, is, has got a date at Tech Noir later, to – fix the problem, the the imbalance that he created with nature. It seems inverted from what Pierce would be trying yeah. to say. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a very much an inversion of uh, the spirit of the first film. Yeah. And anyway, the, the final credits are also pretty funny because there are a lot of Pierces. There's not just Charles B. Pierce Sr. and Charles Pierce Jr. There is a boat renter who is played by Mac Pierce. I don't know if that's his dad. <laughs> there is Girl at Swimming Hole played by Pam Pierce. I don't know if that's another relation. Uh, there's a great name. It says the monster is played by Fabus Griffin, and this is his only mm. film credit. But I loved that name, Fabus. I'd never. That's heard the of big it. monster, by the way, yeah. as opposed to the little monster, whose um, whose actor would go on to have quite a career. Yeah, uh, what a wonderful name! And then finally, the very last thing you see in the credits, it's got acknowledgments where they give special thanks to like companies who supplied things, and they give special thanks to Capri Sun natural fruit drinks. Ha! Ah, that's great. And there you have Boggy Creek 2 and the legend continues because God intended it. It is yeah it is, it is a fabulously fun film um certainly Rift like the the Rift version which by the way is is available uh on Amazon Prime uh and I think you can still get that one on DVD like the the Rift version is phenomenal it's one of the one of my favorite mystery science theater 3000 episodes uh period uh but the film itself like like any film that riffs well it also holds up well on its own, right? Well, I'm not sure how much I – because there are movies that I feel like are good on Mystery Science Theater but are kind of unwatchable on their own. This – I don't know. Maybe you and I could argue about that sometime. This one holds up on its own. You Like mm -hmm. it's it's great with the jokes but it is also very, very interesting and engaging and funny uh, on its own rights. Yeah, I, I think the weirdness probably comes in that I, I say on, on one level, I think the plot is fairly uh, ambitious. You know, they're, they're, they, he is trying to create something with the story of this that feels like it is trying to say something. It is trying to, on some level, ruminate on um, on the natural world and man's place in it. You know, like you know, he. 
Charles B. Pierce seems to be a filmmaker who took himself, you know, took himself seriously, took his ideas seriously. So uh, I think that that bleeds through to the finished product. Uh, also, Old Man Crenshaw, like that's just that's just a fa- fabulously weird performance. It's just it's just, it's just a, a perfect aspect of this film. Crenshaw is for the ages. He he should be there on lists of you know the best iconic characters of all time. It's like Darth Vader, Hannibal Lecter, uh, Anton Chigurh. Crenshaw. <laughs> yeah, he's a force of nature. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode of Weird House Cinema. Um, okay, first of all, uh, let me just remind everybody where you can where you can get this movie if you want to watch uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues, again, actual title. Uh, you can find it on Amazon Prime for starters. Uh, and that version is the 4K restored version. Yes, 4K. Uh, so, so it actually... Yeah, so it looks pretty good. Um, there is, I think there's a DVD version as well. I'm not sure if there's a Blu-ray, um, but maybe that's something that can come together in the, the years ahead. The MST version as well is on Amazon Prime. So you can probably find uh, find this film in either version. Like most places, you uh, rent or purchase uh, your digital uh, films. Uh, and also the original version, the one that I watched, that's available to rent or buy most places as well. And I think that one was restored as well. I'm, I'm not 100% certain, but I think that was restored print that came out in the last couple of years. Nice. All right. Well, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it comes out every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. Again, Tuesdays and Thursdays remain our core science and culture show. But Friday, Friday's the, you know, the late night viewing of the, of the weird. And... Uh, Let's see if you uh, yeah you can find that feed wherever you get your podcast. Just rate, review, and subscribe if you can. Uh, if you uh, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but if, yeah, if you want to talk with other listeners to the show, one place you can do it is if you go onto Facebook and you look for the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. You'll find some Stuff to Blow Your Mind listeners in there and some Weird House Cinema listeners in there. Uh, that's a good place to sort of uh, touch base and discuss and and even suggest uh, titles, uh, topics for the future. Um, and uh, on that count, we would love to hear from the, from everybody via email. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. But that email address, if you would like to get in touch to give us feedback on this episode or any other, or just to say hello, recommend another film for Weird House Cinema – is contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 